we kicked off a series last week called Why Church? And the reason why we are having a series called Why Church is because in my experience with church, churches are notoriously bad at saying why we do the things that we do. There's often extraordinary meaning, value, and reason behind, but most often we just don't ever say it. It's kind of implicit in what we do. Um, So what we wanted to do is say, basically, our church revolves around three different places or environments or experiences. That is what happens here on Sunday morning, what happens on community groups, and then what happens uh, throughout the week as we serve both inside and outside of the church in, in a number of different capacities. And so each week we're taking one of those and saying, hey, this is why if we could only do two or three things as a church, we do these two or three things. And let me kind of get the ball rolling towards what really brought this whole series about. Uh, when I was younger, um, my family was not, we, we, we were churchgoers, but we weren't, so we weren't Christmas and Easter only, but we weren't every Sunday by any means. We were kind of like that, eh, we'll see type thing. You wake up, everything goes, the stars align, and we're going to church. And that was kind of our family. And I grew up in a fairly uh, traditional liturgical church. You know, there wasn't a Sunday where somebody didn't get up and they had a robe on. I was like, okay, that's, they're, they're, they're the Holy Spirit. Okay, there's a robe, you know. Um, and then there, you know, stained glass that went down the, the, the thing. And, you know, you had pews. We didn't have seats. We had pews. And, you know, it was kind of interesting because sometimes it would be like way too tight and sometimes you'd have way too much room. And as kids, you would kind of crawl down the pew. Um, and in my experience, uh, in our church, there were tons of times that you would sit, you would stand, you would go forward, um, we would take communion every Sunday, we would kneel, they would pass the same cup and everybody would drink out of it, and God forbid you got the one that, with the lady who was next to you who had just had this bright red lipstick on, you're like, oh, I just think I made out with my grandma, you know, um, and I never forget, there's this, there's this one thing that used to always bug me, and I don't, something that if, you, if you're new, you might not know this, but um, I have a bit of a rebellious streak, which is not always the best thing as a pastor, but... Um, we would walk down the center aisle, and you know how it is at church, if you've been going to church for a while. Um, the more you attend a church, you almost build an identity around what side of the church you sit on. And you might not have thought about this, but right, you've been here three or four weeks now, and you always sit on the right side. Like, unless, like, heaven comes down and Jesus says left side, you're sitting on the right side, baby. You might not have, like, an exact row because, you know, you're not too legalistic about that, but you're like, I'm in the front third for sure, you know? So, so we had, you know, we, we, were, we were middle of the, of, the, of the church because, you know, we don't want to be the overachievers on the front row, so shouts out to front row folks, you know? And we definitely weren't, like, sinners, you know, we didn't sit in the back. So we were kind of in that nice middle ground, and I'll never forget, we would walk down this aisle, and every time you would go, you'd get to, you know, your row, uh, and, and, and we, you know, classic, have like, you know, eight people, grandmas, uncles, cousins, you know, even more than that, and, and we would all sit in the same row together, and, and everybody would turn, and I was, just, I don't know why, I was just usually the last one in the row, and I would sit there and watch my entire family, as they would go and take a left turn in the row, they would all like bow, or like, you know, like, I don't know, like, like curtsy, they would do something, but some type of a deferential thing towards like the front of the church, and I'm like, well, and this is just me. I'm like, why do we do that? Like, what's significant about this left turn, okay? Because when we took a left turn to, like, face the thing, like, that's when we should bow, right? Like, if it's deference towards God, or maybe when we go, like, for another left turn towards communion, that's when we should, like, you know, do the, do the bow thing. But for some reason, everybody bowed during this time. And I never thought that there was a reason why, or at least I didn't think it was a good reason why. So being the, the wonderful young teenager that I was, we would go into church, and everybody would, you know, bow and all that stuff. And I'd just walk in, I'd just be like, What's up, God? And just kind of take a left, you know. I don't know if you guys know that Jesus is my homeboy, so it's not a big deal. But the thing is, is we want to talk about, and what I would find out later is that there was, for most of the things that we did, there was extraordinary meaning and value behind why and what the church 
did. We just didn't spend enough time talking about why. And so this morning, I want to talk about what I think is the most important part of our entire church. If it's your first time here, I am so glad that you are here because you are going to hear about the most important part of our church and why I think it's the most important. This morning, we're going to talk for a second, over the next few minutes, about groups. In almost any church you go to, there is some form of this. It might be a Bible study, it might be a discipleship group, it might be a community group, it might be a, we go to you know, people's houses and, and go to dinner group, but there's some type of a smaller group, like not the public, not that everybody gathered together, but there are smaller groups. Smaller groups can often be intimidating because you got to go there and show up and talk and you don't like to talk and you know, from time to time they'll ask a question like, you know, how do you feel? And guys, when we hear that question, it's like, how do I feel? I feel like I don't want to talk about how I'm feeling. That's how I you know, feel. But almost every church has some version of this. And if we're being real spiritual, we talk about the why. And it's because the Bible says so, or Jesus says so, or God says so. And while that's true, I think there is so much better of a reason for how God works in those environments. And in fact, what we're going to unpack today is Jesus actually had a pattern of interaction with his disciples that led to an extraordinary Faith, an extraordinary world changing faith. But before we get there, I want to kind of give you a couple thoughts as we get rolling towards that direction. So, uh, just people observation, you could probably know this or you have probably seen this, but perhaps you haven't put words to it. Um, we all, we all want to be known for something. We all want to be known for something. You have something that you want to be known for. I have something that I want to be known for. In fact, a few weeks back, we got all of our group leaders together and we kind of trained them on this thought process and idea. Because we all want to be known for something. I said, what do you want to be known for? And somebody would say, you know, I want to be known as a person of integrity. I want to be known as a person who loves Jesus. You know, I want to be known as someone who makes wise choices. I want to be known as kind. I want to be known as loving. So I figured, you know, just to be transparent, let me tell you a couple things. These are not necessarily the order of importance or the order of which I want to be known for. Let me tell you a couple things that I want to be known for so we all, you know, are on the same page. I want to be known as a good leader. In fact, I'll be honest, I want to be known as a great leader. I want to be known as a really good teacher. Um, this is something that is maybe a little bit specific to me. I spent, <clears throat> I spent more summers than I want to admit in summer school because I didn't pass the grade that I was going through because I didn't think the subject that we were learning was important. Again, the rebellious streak, super helpful in life. Um, but because of that, to be honest, I want to be known as smart. I want to be known as someone who loves his family well I want to be, in fact, I want to be known as someone who prioritizes their family over their church because I believe that my first ministry is to my family. But we all have things that we want to be known for. In fact, if you want to look at what you want to be known for, all you have to do is look at your social media. Because on social media, and I'm not anti, I think it's wonderful. On social media is the typification of the projection of what we want to be known for. You want to be known as pretty. You want to be known as cool. You want to be known as that like adventurous, I'm a wanderer, hippie, whatever, you know. In fact, if you're not on social media, you want to be known as the person who's way too cool for social media, you know? It's like, oh my, no, I quit that stuff. It's just, it's, it's you know, and I, I don't drink out of plastic straws either. It's like, good for you, you know. I'm a sinner, so I'm on social media. But we all want to be known for something. And here's the thing. 
The thing that we care about the most, we want to be known for the most, but the problem is, is the thing that we want to be known for the most, we have the tendency to project the most. So it doesn't matter if I'm actually a wandering hippie. I just want people to think that I am. It doesn't matter if I'm actually carefree. I care, you know, extraordinarily and have incredible anxiety, but I want to be known as like, man, it's just flowy and breezy. You know, I, this is how I want to be known for. And the things that we care deeply about are the things that we project the most. And here is the problem. The moment we begin to, begin to project is the moment we stop growing. The moment we begin to project is the moment we stop growing. And if we're being really honest, the easiest place to project, probably on planet Earth, but definitely in America, is the church. Because the church, when you walk in here, in fact, some of you, you know this, you walked in here for the first time this morning, perhaps for the first time ever to our church, maybe it was the first time to a church in a long, long time, and it was really difficult because you know you were going to walk into a place that, that organizationally and almost institutionally, we champion this really, really almost impossibly high sense of morality. And you know you don't line up to that. And so what we do is we just smile a lot, and we're real nice to people. And it's like we play a game called The Biggest Smiles Wins, you know? And you just, man, you dress up and you look so great. And brother, how are you? You know, if you're, real, if you're real spiritual, you say brother, by the way, or sister, or, you know, friend of God, you know. <laughs> but isn't it true? In fact, come on, if, if you're in here and you're kind of skeptical of faith in Jesus and Christianity, isn't this true? Isn't this part of why you don't like church and Jesus and God? Because what you experienced was a bunch of people who they came to church, they came together, they did whatever, and they projected this sense of holiness, but weren't in fact holy. And come on, if you're a Christian, isn't this true? Perhaps you haven't read your Bible in weeks. You haven't spent adequate time in prayer in weeks, months maybe. But you haven't told other people. You project like, oh my gosh, the, oh, the love of God, you know, and it's just like, oh my gosh, come on. If we're being honest, we project. And the problem is, or the interesting thing is, when you look at Scripture, this couldn't be further from the way that the early church worked. This couldn't be further from the way that Jesus interacted with his disciples. And so what I want to do is I want to unpack this pattern, that when you start to see this pattern, when you start to look at Jesus' interaction with his disciples in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John specifically, you see this pattern unfold over and over and over again. And it is for us where we think growth happens. Because let me kind of just tell it to you the entire thing, and then we're going to unpack it together. Growth happens when we stop projecting. The opposite of projecting is being known. When you are known, you, be, you are available to be challenged. And when you are challenged and known and encouraged, growth happens. If you've got your Bible, you can open up to Matthew chapter 10. We're just going to drop in on one interaction that Jesus has with his disciples. We're going to start actually a little bit early on. We're going to read some of this, and then we're going to um, unpack it together. Chapter 10, verse 5. Jesus is about to send out his apostles, and in this immediate, he's going to talk about some things that they're going to do, and in a second, he's going to talk about kind of some future stuff. So verse 5, these 12, that's his original apostles, disciples, 
Jesus sent out instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans. But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. There's a little bit of intentionality behind this. And proclaim as you go, saying, this is the challenge. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. <laughs> Just pause right there. Can you imagine Jesus saying that to you? He's like, man, like, I'm, I don't know if I can lead a community group right now. Like, you're talking about like, go heal the, you know, the sick. Jesus, I don't know if you, you just said this. You said, raise people from the dead. <laughs> My man, like, <clears throat> these, were, these, were, these were fairly uneducated people who had, you know, they were, they were fishermen, right? Jesus walks into Apalachicola and says, hey, I know you just got done with the oysters. Uh, you know, we want Hitchcock. I know you just got done digging up worms. You know, I don't know what, what, you're, what you're doing, but, but here's what you, I want you to go heal. I want you to go cleanse. I want you to raise from the dead. It's like, what? You know, and he continues. He says, and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of the heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying. Now give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts. No bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or staff, for the laborer deserves his food. In whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. And as you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy... Let your peace come upon it, but if it's not worthy, let your peace return to it. Now, this is all part of the challenge that he's given them. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. And truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. <laughs> Incredible challenge. I want you to go, and I don't want you to, don't want you to take anything. And I know that you, you know, just started following me a few chapters ago, okay? But I want you to go heal. I want you to go cleanse. I want you to go raise from the dead. And I want you to proclaim to them the kingdom of God is at hand. And if somebody doesn't want you to win, that, that, that's fine. You don't have to go in. And I really don't want you to take anything from them. And, and you know, so good luck. Now, at, at this point, right, we would say, well, hold on, Jesus. I don't think you understand that I'm not quite equipped enough yet to do this. If, if, if we're being honest again, we read that. And for some of us, that sounds compelling because we want to do stuff that God has called us to do. We want to, we want to see this extraordinary work of God happen in our life. We want to see the extraordinary work of God happen in our, in our friendships, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, in our work, you know, whatever place and space God has you. But you just feel so inadequate. And so here's what we do. Instead of owning our inadequacy, we project proficiency and sufficiency. And out of owning our inadequacy, our brokenness, we say, yeah, you know, God's called me to. And so I'm going to do it. It's like, yes, he has called you to, but, but, but come on, let's, let's at least for a second own where we are. So this is what Jesus says to him next. Probably the most unencouraging words in all of Scripture. <clears throat> Behold, in case you weren't feeling good enough yet, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. <laughs> Jesus, if you're trying to be encouraging, that was the worst thing you could have said, okay? 
I think what you meant to say was, I am sending out, and you're going to be like wolves, and they're going to be like sheep, and you're just going to tear them up. You know, you're going to, you mean, you're just going to do this most incredible, extraordinary work. He says, no, 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 let me, let me just tell you, this is where we are. I'm sending you out, and I know what I'm giving you. I know this task I'm giving you. I know this level I'm calling you to live to. But let me tell you, I understand you are inadequate. In fact, if I was to put words to it, you guys are like sheep, and they're like wolves. <laughs> well, Jesus, don't sheep. Get eaten by wolves? Yep. But I'm going to send you out like that. <laughs> okay, okay that's, a, that's a problem. And so he begins to encourage them. And he challenges them and he encourages them again. But you can't miss this. This whole thing revolves around Jesus knowing where they are. And here's the problem for us. We don't have Jesus leading our group. We don't have Jesus. He is the head of the church. His Holy Spirit is in the church. But the great thing about Jesus was he knew. He knew the hearts. He knew the minds of people. In fact, it got creepy sometimes. They'd all be thinking something. He'd say, I know what you're thinking. Here's the answer. It's like, stop. But here's what it takes for us. It takes courage to be known. In fact, let me tell you what it really takes. It takes humility to be transparent. If you think about it, think about this on on kind of a granular level. You cannot be transparent without being humble. Because humility has the self-awareness to say, I am broken and I am okay being known in my brokenness. And so he says, man, you're like sheep and you're among wolves. And so this is what's going to happen. So you know, first part of encouragement, let me give you some words of wisdom. He says, so be wise as a serpent and innocent as doves. Verse 17, beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues. You will be dragged by governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, don't be anxious about how you are to speak, which is, by the way, the worst thing you can say to someone who's anxious. He says, don't be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you. And I I just just encourage you a little bit. It's not writing on you. It's not writing on you. God is going to give you what to say. He's going to give you what to do. But let let me just tell you, if you don't first own where you are, you will not depend on God when that moment hits. As you read through the interactions in the New Testament, with Jesus and his disciples over and over and over and over again. You see, I know where you are. I'm going to challenge you to grow. Don't worry, I will be with you. I know where you are. I'm going to challenge you to grow. Don't worry. In fact, the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, Jesus stands on and it says, it's funny, that right before Jesus gives this Great Commission, go therefore, make disciples, you know, all this kind of stuff. It says, you know, they gathered together and some of them doubted. I know where you are, and some of you are still doubting. Jesus says, in light of that, go therefore, make disciples 
of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I have instructed you to do. But don't worry. I know that's an incredible challenge. Let me give you some encouragement. I will be with you till the end of the age. I'm telling you over and over, read the interactions, one or two or all three of these pieces in place in almost every single interaction that Jesus has with the disciples. Because growth happens when I am known I am challenged and I am encouraged. I am known, I am challenged, and I am encouraged. The problem is, when we gather together on Sundays, it is not even kind of appropriate for you to say, this is all of my knownness, right? Can you imagine if we had like a known booth in the back, you know, as, as you exit the sanctuary, everybody walked through and said, you're like your deepest, darkest insecurities and secrets, you know, we would have wonderful church attendance, you know, so it, it would just be, it would just be weird. It would just, just be odd. But here's the thing that would not be appropriate, but the church gathering corporately together the organization, the entity, the body of Christ is so extraordinarily strong and powerful But if it ends there, all we leave with is inspiration. All we, rose, 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 right? There's some growth that happens initially, but most of what happens is inspiration. Sustained life change happens in circles because in circles is where you find that you are known, that you are challenged, and you are encouraged. You should not, it would be inappropriate, it wouldn't even be healthy for you to be fully known by every single person, but you should be known by somebody or a group of somebodies. It would not be appropriate for you to be fully known by everybody, but you should be known by somebody or a group of somebodies. And this is where growth happens. This is, frankly... This is where growth happens. You can transfer this principle to legitimately any place in life. You want to become, you know, more in shape. You know, you want to become stronger. I, I don't want to become, you know, more cardiovascularly in shape, you know. But, you know, you want to, you want to lift more. You know, six months till spring break. All right, it's coming. Um, right, you don't project and say, I bench twice as much or I squat twice as much as I, as I really do. You say, no, this is where I am. I've got to build up. To where I want to be. I've got to continually challenge. And then you have a workout partner, right? And you, you love like the videos where the workout, like sometimes like the football team, like everybody's getting hype in the background and they do this back squat and they're just like, yeah, you know, and you're like, man, that's okay. That's what I need. So when th- this is why working out with groups of people is so much more beneficial because you are known, you challenge yourself, but they are there to encourage you. Let me make a couple pieces of clarification. This is also why I don't think Simply having Christian friends is enough. When you regularly sit down in a group of people and talk about your insufficiencies and your insecurities, you talk about the places where when, whether it's based on a passage of scripture you read together, based on the sermon, based on whatever it is, when you are able to talk and say, this is where I am, you are challenged and you are encouraged. When you're with Christian friends, let me tell you what happens. You are known, but you are rarely challenged unless you are going AWOL. Think about it. Isn't that true? Like, you're like, oh, man, I'm in community. It's like, no, like, you have friends, okay? Like, everybody has friends. That's great. You should have friends. But my friends, unless I set up intentional conversations, do not create this sense of challenge and encouragement. We just set up this sense of we're friends. I know you. I know your strengths. I know your weaknesses. And, yeah, man, you, you, know, you start acting like an idiot. Of course I'm going to say something but not regularly, not progress. This is why, by the way, 
I don't think it's good enough even that you are a Christian in ministry with other people. Because when you're in ministry with other people, we say, oh yeah, man, we're just ministering together, laboring for the gospel. That's great. I think that's very important. But, but, but here's the thing. You, by definition, are in community with them, but you are challenging someone else. You are helping someone else. You are loving someone else. You are serving someone else. Maybe you're encouraging each other. But I think one of, the, one of the worst things that happens is we just get into this ministry mode where you're suffering and laboring for the gospel but aren't personally growing, growing and developing. Let me, let me tell you how serious we are about, how serious I am about this. I, I have been in a group ever since we started the church. In fact, I was in groups before we started the church. But for me, that's not enough because I know even at group, it's easy for me to project. For me, and I think it's a little bit different, and I'll tell you why in a second. But I tell you this just in, in, in transparency, not as like, a, oh my gosh, woe is me. What I know about me is that most people don't want, most people don't want to know me and my deficiency. You want to project me in who you want me to be as the leader. And because of that, I know I can go if I wanted to. I could go six months without reading or praying and no one would ask. And I don't say, oh, you don't care about me. Of course you love me. But but this is the dynamic of the org chart. This is the dynamic of pastoral ministry. This is why it's so easy for pastors to fall. Some people say, man, I don't see how in the world a pastor could fall. You want to know why? Because as a pastor... Not only do you have a projection of what you want to be and who you want to be, everyone else has a projection of who they want you to be. And all I have to do is say yes. So every week, every Friday, since before we started this church, William Colley, our discipleship pastor, and I meet almost without fail. We have that earmarked for probably, it's probably been eight years that we have been meeting every Friday morning. And we do our best to not talk about church stuff. It's how are you? What's new with you? How's your family? And how's your relationship with Jesus? What's going on with you personally, spiritually, and how are you doing with your family? And just what's new in life? Because I have to be known by somebody in a group of somebody's. When our pastors, and you know, Jeff, William, and I, as we grow and have more pastors, this is a part of, of, of what we do when we get together. Just how are you? How are you? How are you? Because being known, growth doesn't happen. And the higher up you are on the org chart, the more it's assumed that you're growing. Now, I don't say that to say, oh, you know, oh my gosh, what was me? But here's why I say that. This is so extraordinarily important. For the last, gosh, almost decade, I... William, our leaders, on top of being in groups, say it's just, it it is so important that we are going to go out of our way to every single week. Make sure we have systematized a check-in. That we are known, that we are challenged, and that we're encouraged. Now, if you've never been a part of a group, here's where this is important. Again, don't have to be known by everybody, but somebody or a group of somebody's. We launch into a ministry season as the fall hits, and <clears throat> next Sunday at 5 o'clock, 
Uh, many of you, you're involved in groups, you're involved in community groups, and, and, and you should just continue to, to meet with the group and go to the group that you're already planning on. But if you've never been involved in a community group before, then we have this thing called group launch. It's going to be here 5 o'clock next Sunday afternoon. And we would love for you to connect in a group. Not because, oh, we just want our attendance to grow in our groups. No, no, no. It's because we want to actually pursue holiness and not just project holiness. And that is since the days that Jesus walked planet Earth, how it worked and functioned. So next Sunday, we're going to have our group launch. If you've been thinking about it, praying about it, wondering about it, I would say absolutely, please, please, please go. In fact, if you're here and you're kind of investigating church, investigating faith, the thing is, is we want to own that too. That, that's, so, that's so fine. That's so okay. And so we've created this, you know, we've actually just kind of stole it from some other people because that's, you know, the most efficient way to do it. Um, <clears throat> this thing called starting point. Which is, what do you do as you're wrestling with a starting point in faith, right? A lot of you guys, you know, you were handed a, a third grade theology and your third grade theology, you know, met the rigors of 18, 19, 20, 25, 35 year old you and the realities of the real world. It just didn't hold up. And so now you're grasping and grappling, maybe coming back to this idea of what does faith look like? It's an environment based on you asking questions. There's some direction, there's some subject guidance, but it's a place where you can ask any and every question about faith. In fact, a group, so it's, it's meeting after the 1130 service, it's the group meeting, but an interest meeting. It's called our, uh, we, we have, we did it a, a one time before, but it's called a discipleship group. All the groups are discipleship, but this is like, we call it discipleship because this is like discipleship on steroids, okay? If you miss like mix CrossFit and powerlifting together and then like a marathon or somewhere in there, like right? this is discipleship, there's a high level of, of um buy into it, extraordinary growth that happens. They meet a number of times a week, and there's, there, there's some things that, that, that go on with it. But actually, let me tell you a little bit about our group. I'm just, I'm, I'm just going to brag on them for a second. Michelle Varan, who's our, uh, actually our, our women's discipleship director. Shout out to Michelle. Okay, let me tell you about Michelle. If you don't know Michelle, you should know Michelle. Michelle is one of the people that she will pray for you more than you pray for yourself. And she's the person, like, I, I kid you not, there are times, a month doesn't go by where I get some kind of a message from Michelle saying, hey, I was praying for you today, and man, God just told me to tell you, to tell you this. And I'm like, like, quit being a creeper, right? Because like, it always, like, exactly what's going on in my life. I'm like, like, stop. Like, you're looking at my text or my emails. Like, who, you know, Apple, what are you doing with my life? Because I'm telling you, she just prays and God, like, speaks. And I'm like, what? You know, that, that's crazy. And so, you know, ladies, Michelle, and guys, let me tell you a little bit about Adam, because I know how guys work. Guys, we don't actually want to go to something that a guy, that another guy's going to lead unless we know that we want to learn from the other guy. Totally get it. It is what it is. But let me tell you about Adam, okay? If you ever wondered if you could be intellectual, analytical, and have faith, you should go to this discipleship group. In fact, you should meet with Adam Varan. He would never tell you this because he's, you know, humble, and he's just like, you know. Actually, that kind of is kind of not humble. But anyways, He is an engineer at the Mag Lab, which Florida State stole, shout out, from MIT, okay? Adam is the engineer who takes the design, who, who takes the thoughts of what they want to create from the most brilliant scientists in magnetism. I don't know. And, and he designs, he, he designs, he is the engineer who designs how in the world we are going to build the biggest magnet. In fact, he is one of the world records holder. I kid you not. The guy who's leading your discipleship group is a world record holder for designing, engineer designing the biggest magnet in the world. Now, pause. 
If you ask him, he's going to have like 35 asterisks by it. Okay, it's actually like a supercharger, electromagnetic, you know, bipulsar, you know, engineered magnet. Whatever, man, the dude's super smart, right? Like, <clears throat> biggest magnet in the world. Guinness may or may not qualify him as the smartest man on earth, okay? Like, I'm telling you, if you have ever wondered if you can be analytical, intellectual, and have faith, you should go to that group. But here's why I say that. Don't you dare, don't you dare think that simply attending and projecting is a substitute for growing. The beautiful part about this whole idea is it mirrors the posture of the gospel, which is simply me acknowledging, God, I am broken, and I am sinful, and I have fallen short. And I know that I am alienated from your perfection because of my rebellion. And I'm going to own the fact that I cannot provide my own way to be made right with you. And God saw that. Sent his son to die for us in our humility, in our sinfulness. To reconcile us to him. And then he says, now go and sin no more. Yeah, yeah, you were broken. And I have restored and I have reconciled. And so go and sin no more. Do not let, do not let the projection of who you want to be known as, the holiness that you want to be known for, get in the way of actually pursuing holiness. And I am telling you, I am telling you, since Jesus walked planet earth, the way that this has been accomplished is as groups of people, eight, 10, 12 got together, were known, were challenged, and were encouraged. So I'm going to pray that God gives us the wisdom to know what to do and the courage to do it. So Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much for giving your son, our savior, Jesus, to die for us, that we could be made right with you, God. We acknowledge our sinfulness. We acknowledge our brokenness. We own it, and we humbly are just so thankful that you, God, would love us so much that you sent your son to die, to pay the restitution, the price that we could not ever. And in our brokenness, we at least have the awareness to acknowledge that. And you now reconciled us and said, go and sin no more. Go and pursue holiness. Go and make disciples. Go love your neighbor. Love one another. Serve one another. Pray for one another. And God, I pray, whether it happens at our church or another church, I pray that you would give us the courage and the humility to live with transparency, to be known by somebody or a group of somebodies. And that there would be challenge and there would be encouragement and challenge and encouragement and known and challenge and encouraged. And God, I pray that we would be a church that doesn't simply project holy but we would actually be holy. God, please give us the wisdom to know what to do 
and the courage to do it. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.